During the American frontier, life was hard. You can imagine a small family trying to eke out their existence on the land with danger looming all around them just in the wilderness. Nighttime might be pretty boring. It might even tempt dad to dip too deeply into his cups while mom mended the clothes and washed them. The kids, after chores, probably tried to invent some game in front of the fire. Word would come to you that just over the hill, through the valley, over the river and through the wood, along wagon trail right away, there was an upcoming camp meeting. A meeting. People. Yes, we're going to be in church at this camp meeting, and maybe we're going to be in church for several weeks, but good Lord, there's going to be people. And you look forward to it. These would be your moments of entertainment and community. That's, that's the situation in the world that our tradition was birthed in. Some people call it the Restoration Movement. Some call it the Stone Campbell Movement. We're simply the Christian church, part of the disciples of Christ. But, but that's the world where our ideology got its ideas in. You see, in that world, there was something else going on. The, the Christian world was rife with schism, with creedal separation. It was proliferating in those days. What does that mean? Well, you can imagine because today we have a lot of separation within the church. We are a splintered and fractured church, but it was going at hyper speed in those days. People were splintering off of one group and forming another. And the, here's the thing. They were writing tons and tons of new creeds. Creeds were written in this day and time to separate one's group from another group. What's a creed, you ask? Well, it comes from this Latin word credo, which I know doesn't really help, but that word literally means I believe. A creed is a summation of belief, and the Christian church from its very beginning has lived on creeds. There's some great ones. The Apostles' Creed is a summary of the faith. The Nicene Creed is, is a beautiful explanation of the Christian faith. The Chalcedonian Creed, for my money, is terrific because it gets the Holy Spirit right. But by the time of the founding of our tradition, the creed old people had run amok. I don't like you. I'm mad at you. I'm going to write a new creed to separate myself from you. And so our founders got together and had this desire for Christian unity. They said things like this. We're not the only Christians, but we want to be Christians only. They sought no adjective in front of the name Christian. They simply wanted to be Christians. And they wanted to, to get back to basics. And so they looked at the book of Acts, where the, where the Christian church was birthed. And they started finding patterns of the ancient church and said, let's try as best we can to, to replicate that. Let's restore that image today. Let's get beyond the creedal system of separation of our own time and simply be Christians. So they came up with many other phrases and things to identify their set of beliefs, which ironically is just another way of being creedal. It's hard not to be. Because if you try to describe who you are in some way, you're going to state what you believe. And, and so we had mottos and sayings. My favorite one is this. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. In all things, charity or love. It's not something that the Campbells or Barton Warren Stone, our founders, 
created. It's something from the ancient church fathers, but, but it's one we've adopted and we've hung our hat on, and I absolutely love it. I teach a class here at Peachtree Christian Church called Starting Point, and when I teach it, I always walk people through the history of our tradition, and I think uh, that, that the Christian churches and the, our restoration movement is probably the most unique tradition to America. And I tell people all about it, and I tell people how Peachtree Christian Church, in particular in the tradition, is unique, and how I think that, and I'll go to my dying day believing this, that we might have the most unique theology between here and downtown on Peachtree Street. I sincerely believe that. A church that desires to be a unity-oriented church like this, it's terrific. So I get real excited, and I tell them about the things I love the most, and I tell them about the essentials business. So about a year ago, I was teaching this, and, and I said this. I go, let's start with the in all things love bit. What does that mean? Well, it means that in all things we, we love. It's pretty simple, really. It means that we're called to love people even if we disagree with them. It means we're called to love people even if they vote differently than we do. It means we're called to love people even when we're talking to people who we think do things that are immoral. It means that we love people even if they don't share the same opinions about sexuality and gender that we do. It means that we love people even if they like a different football team than we do. Most people shake their head like this, but it's the hardest one. <laughs> the opinions, liberty, what does that mean? I tell them, well, here's what that means. It means that I'm allowed to believe and tell you that I think rum raisin ice cream is absolute rubbish. It means that I'm all, boy, that was like you guys didn't get on board with that. Must be some real rum raisin lovers out there. It means that my opinion's like, I think that the DH is the worst thing that ever happened to baseball, and the worst thing happening in sports is the instant replay. Those things are things I'm allowed to hold, and you're allowed to disagree with them, and those things extend into some theological matters too. Areas where it's not so clear what the Scripture teaches. There's a lot of opinion room in the church. And then there are the essentials. The essentials are the things that we will hang our hats on that unify brothers and sisters of the faith in every country, period. As I was teaching this last year, somebody raised their hand and asked me a question heretofore I have never been asked. I taught this class or similar versions of it in other churches I've served. Here's the question. Yes, Reverend Longbuns, what are the essentials? That struck me. A question has been rattling around my brain ever since. I, I haven't ever been asked that. So I thought quickly on my feet. Maybe I can list a bunch of basic Christian doctrines. And then I started wondering whether those doctrines would be basic to my mind or to everyone else's or what. And so me, a pastor in a church that's typically non-credal, I said, Basically what you find in the Apostles' Creed, basically what you find in the Nicene Creed, all the early good stuff, the stuff that we've agreed on forever, basically that. And that won the day for that moment, but the question has rebounded in my mind ever since, and I've taught the class many more times ever since. The last time I taught it, someone asked me this, how do you become a member at Peachtree Christian? What do you have to believe? I said that we have one confession that we ask people to declare in front of an audience. 
Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? This is the Petrine Confession, the confession of St. Peter about Jesus. And so far as it goes, it's pretty low-hanging fruit, isn't it? It doesn't ask you to believe in much. It says, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? What does that mean? The anointed one from God sent to bring the kingdom of God, who is also the son of the living God. So there's some sort of deep and divine relation between God the Father and what I confess is God the Son. But beyond that, my friends, we don't ask anything else. What all of this means for a place like Peachtree is that by definition, there's allowance made for a great deal of diversity of belief. I am constantly surprised, though the truth is I should not be, by how often, though, that we Christians like to add items into the essentials category. The first thing that we like to add to it are the beliefs. I heard someone once say that fundamental to belief in the church was the belief in hell and a particular understanding of hell. I find it interesting when we find something that matters to us or that we hang our hat on and, and we apply it to the essentials when it's not even really that clear if the New Testament makes it essential. Certainly not found in the creeds necessarily and it's not even there present in our own confession of faith. A better example and a clearer one than hell might be this. Every Christmas time, I go back home and visit with my family. My, my dad was a kind of a wild child, and his best friend from high school was a wild child. And so now both of them have grown up, and they're Christian men, and they've kind of tamed their wildness. They get together, and they talk about their life, and I hang out and sit at the table with them and all the like. So my dad and his buddy are talking about their other friend, and their other friend was the wildest of them all, the kind of guy who'd like light his hair on fire and run crazy at parties, just a madman. No one would ever believe he'd become a Christian, let alone a Baptist, but here he is now a Baptist. <laughs> and so my dad and he are talking about this guy, about how he's confessed faith in Jesus Christ, and he's been baptized, and his life has changed, and then my dad's buddy looked at me because he knows I'm a minister and have theological training, and he looks at me and he goes, in a hushed tone, yeah, but does he have the truth? I, I was confused. The truth? What do you mean the truth? He, he just said he's a follower of Christ Jesus. What, what truth are, yeah, yeah, that, that's okay, that's good, that's good, but does he, does he know the truth? excuse me, what are you talking about? And then he began to chart out this particular understanding of what some Christians call the end times, a very rigorous and complicated set of beliefs about the end times. Apparently, this was a truth that was even somehow deeper than confession in Christ, and, and it was good that he was in, but he still needed to learn, quote, unquote, the truth. It is interesting and fascinating to me all the things that we individuals will put into the category of the essentials. Huh. You know, I was preaching a sermon once. Some of you know this story. And I took a bit from the gospel. And in the point, I criticized something from the Republican Party platform. I didn't use the word Republican, mind you. And the second sentence after it, I criticized something from the Democratic party platform. I didn't use the word Democrat, mind you, but to anyone who uh, was aware, 
It's pretty obvious. So I thought what I was trying to do was show how the gospel undermines all of our thinking and how our gospel trumps our entire system and it's better and we need to lean on that. So I come off the chancel. I thought the sermon was, was fairly, fairly successful because there was a lot of head nodding. It wasn't. So as I was coming off the chancel, a woman met me right down here in the front. It wasn't here, it was at another church, but right in the front she met me and she said, oh baby, thank you for saying that because you and I both know Jesus would be a Democrat. <laughs> I found my way through the people, all of them congratulating me on their confirmation bias. And I get to the back of the sanctuary and a guy grabbed me and goes, what did crazy old so-and-so say to you? Doesn't she know that Jesus would be conservative? It's interesting the kinds of things that we think are important and then we put them in the essential category. We do it to kind of mark people in and mark people out. We do it to find the right kind of people for our community. Who fits and who isn't, doesn't. Well, there's so many ways that things that we like to add to, concoct, contrive, formulate, and invent to put into the category of essentials. And, and they no doubt do their work to divide us into sheep and goats. But who's sheep and goats of that? I'm not certain. The next course for adding to the essentials is beyond belief. It concerns lifestyles, habits, and shortcomings, basically it's the work of counting up other people's sins. You know, I was um, sitting around a campfire on a men's fishing trip. And the subject of a young woman in our church came up. This, again, was another congregation. This young woman was, she was heavy. She weighed heavy in the church because she was a single mother of three kids. They had different fathers, and she had needs. She was out of work. She didn't have a car. And we were constantly trying to come to her aid. Now, before I tell you what happened at the fire that day, let me just tell you the good news. A loving family in that church took her and her three kids into their home for about a half a year. She received counseling. She got enough money saved up after she got a job to buy a car. And then after that, she got enough money to save up to get an apartment. And she is on her own taking care of herself with the help of these people. You should say something about that out loud now. Maybe amen. Okay, because I don't know what the church is for, friends, unless it's about making people whole. And that's what was happening. Around that fire, a man who I like very much said, we needed less people like her in our church. I like to believe, and I'd like you to believe, that I have the theological eloquence to be able to say the perfect thing at any moment, but I didn't have two words to rub together, ah, well, as I was pretty certain that was the wrong kind of thing. I said, well, who do we need in our church? And he said, well, people like you and me. I said, well, what does that mean? Well, people who can make a contribution, people who have enough money to help out, because if we have too many people like her, then we won't have enough people to help them. It was all logical in a certain sort of transactional kind of way. We have ways of counting up essentials and their ways of marking people the right kind of people or not. We have a knowledge of an idea of putting people in, I should say, and keeping people excluded. Richard Rohr says something about this that I find fascinating. He said, 
Religion that is focused on winners and losers is almost always a bad religion. Why, why, why are we interested in winners and losers in the church? The church of Jesus Christ, the Christian church, is about transformation for all, isn't it, friends? Yet I have no doubt. There, there's probably in your mind somebody in the world that's probably too far gone. They're not the right kind of person for us because they really have crossed some lines that can't be uncrossed in this world. Maybe you've read about them or you noticed that they're featured a lot on certain channels concerning history. Jeffrey Dahmer. All I have to do is say his name. Some of you are now worried about what I'm going to say next. Jeffrey Dahmer did things that are unspeakable. Jeffrey Dahmer did things that are unimaginable. Jeffrey Dahmer went to prison. And in prison, he decided he'd like to see a preacher. So the warden opened up a phone book and started calling churches in his community. I confess, because I'm going to be judgmental on these preachers. I don't know how I would respond with that phone call. Can you imagine getting that call? Would you like to come and pray with Jeffrey Dahmer? Most of the pastors found an excuse and hung up. Until he got to this little church... It was a little Church of Christ church. And the Church of Christ is part of our tradition. The pastor said, oh, he'd like to study scripture? Okay. He started driving to the prison once a week to study the Bible and pray with the infamous Jeffrey Dahmer. Studied with him for some time and took his confession of faith, heard his profession of guilt and sin, and baptized him into Jesus Christ. At the nine o'clock, people got happy and said, hallelujah. And I had to then tell them what happened next. He lost his church. Most everybody in the congregation left and said they didn't want to be with a pastor who would go meet with a man like that. I guess we are tempted to make the essentials about finding the right kind of person for our little group. We have a little checklist of questions when we're considering whether someone's in or out. Do, do we agree perfectly over all things with a person? Check, they're in. Do they comport themselves in a manner that would not embarrass us? Check, they're in. Do we feel proud to be seen with them? Check, they're in, they're good people. Or more practically, can they make a good pledge to the church? Check, they're in. By the way, we need you to make good pledges this year. Will they affirm everything that I already think and believe? Check, they're in. Did we do a background check on them? Not too many skeletons in their closet, is there? All this brings to mind the words of St. Paul from chapter 1, chapter 1 of Timothy, 1 Timothy. Hear from St. Paul himself. I am grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
for that very reason I receive mercy, so that in me, as the first and foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of kings, to the King of ages, immortal and invisible, the only God be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. St. Paul says this, I'm nothing. I'm a mess. I was the worst. I was the worst. So that's why God saved me first. God saved me so that people could look around one day and say, well, if God will take him and make him better, God will take me too. Friends, let it be known that an essential of our faith is that Christ comes for you, and Christ has come for me, and Christ has come to redeem sinners. Christ has come to make you and me whole, and that's a good thing. We can look to St. Paul and say, if St. Paul can be made whole, so can I. Who's the right kind of person? It's not the perfect person. The right kind of person is the person who needs Jesus. I need Jesus and so do you. I've invited you as a congregation to read a book with me. We are selling it here in the gathering space after service. Next month at our board meeting, we'll discuss it. We'll discuss it at various uh, groups next month. It's called Falling Upward by Richard Rohr. He says this, and I think it's apropos. A perfect person ends up being one who can consciously forgive and include imperfection rather than the one who thinks that he or she is totally above and beyond imperfection. It's a good thing that the church has been called a hospital for the sick, for sinners, because each one of us is guilty. May you be the right kind of person because you have need of Jesus, and may you extend that kind of hospitality to all others in need, and may that be amongst your essentials.